Tonight's scripture is from Matthew 22, verses 23 through 33. So I'll give you all a second to flip. It'll also be on the screen. All right, Matthew 22, 23. The same day Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kayla, for reading. And thank you for the starting us off in worship. Um, I, we've been praying a lot for tonight. We pray a lot for every Tuesday night, but um, just praying that the Lord would move in a special way because when you, talk about, uh, when you talk about how awesome Jesus is, people are like, cool. When you talk about marriage, people are like, I'm all ears. And so <clears throat> we, we kind of want the Lord to do a little different work. Um, so I, this is probably like the least... Um, romantic marriage sermon that you've ever heard, um, or at least that I have uh, have have written, and it did, it wasn't set out to be that way. Uh, but as I as I just studied the scriptures, as I went through the biblical theme of marriage, it just became more clear that um, I think we need to see a theology of marriage. We need to understand what we're talking about when we talk about biblical marriage. Uh, because some of you are married, some of you are seriously dating, some are engaged, some are single. And so this, this topic, it's, it affects all of us, but all of us in different ways. We really need to have a deep understanding of what is the theology of marriage. And so there have been entire books written on this, tons of podcast series, tons of, of sermon series. So this is not an exhaustive list. In fact, I'm going to boil it down to what I call the five spokes of marriage is what we're going to get into tonight. Uh, so let me just go ahead and give you what I would call the, the tagline. Human marriage is a metaphor given by God for men and women to understand his plan for the future union Christians will have with Jesus. I'll say it again. Human marriage is a metaphor given by God for men and women to understand his plan for the future union Christians will have with Jesus. And then to expound just a little bit more, I would just tell you that I am, I'm sold. I'm convinced that this is true. This August, Heather and I will celebrate 22 years of marriage. All have been wonderful uh, and and. Yet in the sweetness, the, the sweeter that our marriage has become, and, and I hope what is a very godly biblical way, the more I am convinced this is just a mirror we are looking dimly into. And when we are with the Lord, and as Kayla just read, and no longer are married, that's Jesus' words, Matthew 22. And Heather and I are no longer married. Neither she nor I will be lacking a thing. And I hope that as this plays out tonight, that will start to make more sense. So I believe that marriage is God, is it marriage by God's design. It gives us a covenant union to carry on with God's plan for multiplying redemption while enjoying companionship and sexual expression, all motivated by God's love. So it's, this is important because we are going to hit on one of the five spokes is sexual expression. And I even found it difficult in writing the sermon. We live in such a sexualized culture. It is incredibly difficult even in preparing a sermon while using your Bible, 
to think of things in the proper, right, and righteous way. And so this is, and, and that's, that's kind of damning and shaming on us as a people that we've gotten so far from what God intended. Um, look, mar- marriage has always been a good thing. Ever since God made it in, uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, but after Genesis 3, from Genesis 3 on, marriage is still a good thing, but it became a difficult thing. We, we started to lose purpose after Genesis 3. Complaining came about, lust came about, pain came about, sickness came about, death came about, laundry came about. All, all of these things came about because of sin and they infected marriage. And so what we're looking at is not the perfect design of marriage, but we're looking at marriage as it is, with a perfect God who directs us how to live in a broken world. And so these five key points, these five spokes, and I'm gonna come back to them and they'll be up on the screen, but the five spokes that I would say would be, uh, one would be covenant, and uh, one would be diversity, one would be fruitfulness, the fourth would be multiplication, and the fifth one would be sexual expression. And I know I have not read a verse yet, uh, but this all comes from Genesis 1, 2, and 3. These five spokes, all of them can be seen in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. So let me just show you a biblical timeline of marriage, and if you've been here for any of the rest of this series, the way that I'm doing this is I'll show you a biblical timeline, I'll walk you through a bunch of verses, and then I'll say, so where does that leave us? And then we get into the application. So the biblical timeline, here we go. Uh, I have been working on these. Jason and I are in an iPad duel. <laughs> I'd like to think that I'm winning. You be the judge. Um, and so <clears throat> anyway, here's, what, here's, here's the beauty of, of this. So I'm gonna, I am going to zoom in. But if you see, it's, it's, a, it's this biblical timeline of marriage. There's always a C, an F, an R, and an R at the bottom of all these timelines. Creation, fall, redemption. Uh, no, rest, yeah, redemption, restoration. I always get the two R's mixed up. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And uh, creation is when God makes everything. The fall is when sin enters the world. Uh, the redemption is when Jesus shows up. And the restoration is the part we have yet to see yet. That's the second coming. And we live between the two R's. That's the time frame in which we live. I want you to see the very top. The Bible begins with a marriage and the Bible ends with a marriage. That is a very cool thing when you're looking at the theme of marriage and you're looking, trying to understand the meta-narrative of Scripture. How does the Bible start and how does the Bible end? If you were, it took any lit classes uh, in college in particular, you looked at how does it start and how does it end? And the Bible starts with a man and a woman becoming husband and wife. And the Bible ends with a man bringing his bride to him that he has wooed and sacrificed and waited on. And that is Christ in the church. And so, it's, it is not a stretch to say we can track the Bible through the timeline of Scripture. Now, at the top, there's those five, and in dark green are the five spokes, and then we see Jesus, his life modeled four of the spokes, which is a hint, if you are single, you can model right now in this moment, you can start modeling four of the five spokes that are found within marriage. At the second coming of Christ, we'll be able to model three of the five spokes that are originally set up in marriage. Between the R's, we still have the five spokes, covenant, diversity, fruitfulness, multiplication, and sexual expression. So let's just zoom in. Here's a few of the marriages found in Scripture. We have Adam and Eve. That was great for like a page in my Bible. And then we have the fall, and that's when things become difficult. Then we have Abraham, Sarah. Abraham and Sarah, they had a rough go because they had Ishmael and Isaac. Uh, So we start to see like, okay, in marriages, you can get ahead of God. You can do your own thing. Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. When you see one man's name and you see two women, that is not good. It's always trouble. Nobody wants to be a sister wife. And so, and they were literal sisters and wives of the guy. And so you don't, you don't want that. That's bad. And so Jacob, he loved Rachel, and the words of Rich Mullins, um, uh, uh, Rich Mullins said, Jacob, he loved Rachel, and Leah, she was there for dramatic effect. And, uh, and it's just a sad, sad story, uh, but it's, 
It's not if you're Rachel. Uh, and so, but it's still, it's a sad story. Then God interrupts some of these stories and he gives us the Torah. He gives us the instruction. That's another word for law. It's a word I like better that I think is a more accurate translation of the word law. He gives us the instruction. This is God's instructing us on how to live. One of the interesting things is he instructs very clearly on marriage. And he gives a lot of instructions on marriage and interpersonal relationships. Then, after that, we have Boaz and Ruth. And yes, I'm skipping a lot of marriages, but Boaz and Ruth, the story of the Redeemer. It's a beautiful story. And then Solomon and all of his wives, who also wrote the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, this beautiful love story, that one lucky lady um, of the 1300. So, uh, and so that's just the Lord just using imperfect people to do perfect things. Uh, and then there's a story of Hosea. Francine Rivers' famous book, Redeeming Love, portrays this story, and it is a beautiful story. It is a picture of a prophet who marries a prostitute, and when the prophet marries the prostitute, she is, she is wayward over and over again. You see this story, and you feel for Hosea, and you just want Gomer to come, to come back to him, and then you realize, I'm Gomer, and the Lord is Hosea. And he's coming back to me. He's, he's pursuing me, and I need to come back to him. And that's what you see in that story. And then you see Jesus. And in Jesus' birth, you see something interesting. You see covenant. You see diversity. You see fruitfulness. You see multiplication. But what's missing in his birth? There's no sexual expression in his birth because his mother is a virgin. So it's just an interesting little note that you have there. And then between the R's, we're given instructions in the New Testament on how to live out these five spokes of Christian marriage. And then when there is the new heaven and the new earth, where the Bible ends with a marriage, there is covenant diversity and fruitfulness. And that's where we're going to land the plane when we get there later this evening. Let's go through the biblical timeline. We'll start, and I'll just show you, by the way. I didn't put it out on the group me. I'm going to put it out on the group me. I'll probably do it tonight, last week's and this week's that slide. And so this is for all of you people that are like, I want to know every verse that he's using because it's impossible to read every verse. But here are a, here's a snapshot, and I left a bunch out. But this is tracing marriage through the biblical timeline. I'll put it on the group me, but you can take a picture of it now. Um, but it's probably so small, you're going to need to take a picture to see it anyway. Uh, and so we'll start. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Here's what we're going to see. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And the Lord God said, let, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, Imago Dei, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then we go to chapter two, and chapters one and two, they coincide together. It's the same story told different ways. And in chapter two, verse 18, it says, and then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. I want to pause right here. I'm not going to teach through all these verses. Some I'm just going to hit on, but I do want to point something out here. I was I was reading about biblical marriage and uh, <clears throat> and this idea. And one of the people that I heard, she I've mentioned her name a few times, but Nancy Guthrie, a really good Presbyterian Bible teacher. Um, she said, I say Presbyterian because my dad, my dad's like always been Southern Baptist, and he said, you know, she's Presbyterian. And I said, she's a good Bible teacher, isn't she? He said, he is, she is. She's very good. And so anyway, we just had a funny conversation, so I just thought I would say that. Um, anyway, she's a, she's a great Bible teacher. But she pointed out in this verse something that I had just taken hook, line, and sinker from so many preachers before. And I think I've said it before. The Bible does not say that Adam was lonely. And a lot of people have built their idea of marriage on stopping loneliness. That is not what this verse says. Adam didn't know what loneliness was. You can't want something you don't know is there. Adam was alone. 
meaning there were no other humans. But he had the Lord. And to read loneliness in here would be to say that the Lord was not enough. Adam was alone. And every other created thing had its counterpart. And the Lord said, it's not good that he doesn't have his counterpart. Let us make him a helper. And the helper, here's another proof that it's not about solving loneliness. The helper was made not to make Adam unlonely. The helper was made so that they could continue to do the work of God because the task was too big for one person. So this original union, as unromantic as it may seem, was not to extinguish this incredibly lonely heart of Adam. He wasn't like, I'm in the Lonely Hearts Club, Heart Club. Like, no. He now had a helper because the task of the Lord's calling was too big for one. And so, just we won't do that for all of them, but I just wanted to point that out. Now, we'll press on. There's many more verses, but when you get to Genesis 29, you finally have have a romantic verse about marriage. The Bible's not super flowery to begin with about marriage. Uh, The first poem is about marriage. Adam says, whoa, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Oh, you are you are nice, and uh, and so like that's the first poem in the Bible. But then you get to Genesis twenty nine, and Jacob has met Rachel, and his father in law Laban says you have to work for her seven years. Genesis twenty nine twenty. The first time I read this, I was like, no, that is love. Genesis twenty nine twenty. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed but a few days because of the love he had for her. I was like, that's what I'm talking about. That man loved that girl. I don't think that's even possible. And then I met Heather, and we were going to get engaged. And our engagement was put off for several months. But they did not seem like a few days. Because <laughs> I was ready to get married, y'all. Um, no, they, it didn't matter. If, her father, if my father-in-law would have said, you have to wait two years, I'd, I'd have waited. Because love just does those things. And then we press on, and, and you get to, to Song of Solomon. Uh, it's much further in your Bible. It's past Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. But you get to, to Song of Solomon, and you hear, you hear the power of love in marriage. And in chapter 8, the last chapter, in verses 6 and 7, Solomon says, the, Solomon says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. Listen to this language. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the fiery flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Now, that is enough for some of you to stop dating whoever that is. They don't, they, don't, they don't talk about you like that. What a beautiful call of the power of love in marriage. And then uh, you get to, to Hosea, and you see a marriage in distress. And this marriage in distress has this incredible husband And he's calling his wife to come back. And in Hosea chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Therefore, behold, here's how I'm going to bring my bride back. I'm going to allure her, and I'm going to bring her into the wilderness, and I'm going to speak tenderly to her. And I'm going to give her, now this is a bad wife. This is a woman who has been with many other men and has plans to do so again. And this is a husband who's portraying divine love. And there, I'm going to give her vineyards. I'm going to make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she will answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. And what you see is the husband is the Lord. And the bad wife 
is Israel in this case, but all of us who have run after other gods. And you see this incredible redeeming love. And the Bible, the Bible goes on, and Jesus certainly, he, he teaches on the covenant of marriage. His first miracle in John chapter 2 is, is at a wedding. He uses marriage to illustrate the second coming. Uh, that marriage is, is, is also taught that it's temporary. And so the groom who's coming for us in Revelation 19 also kind of demystifies marriage a little bit. He certainly elevates it to its status, but not past it. And then you get to to the Corinthians, you get to Paul's writing, and Paul is gonna be the one who who explains a lot of, of what we know and practice in modern Christian marriage. And so, for instance, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you want to turn there, this is a good one. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul teaches something so interesting about marriage. Now, Paul is a single man, but in 6 verse 17, and I'm actually going to start a, a verse before that. In 6 17, he says something fascinating, but in 6 16, he says, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. He's quoting from from Genesis 2.24. The two will become one flesh. Then verse 17. Listen to this language that Paul uses to describe. He uses marriage language, but he's talking about us and the Lord. But... He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now, do you see what Paul's doing? Paul is saying when two people have sexual intercourse together, the two become one flesh, and you don't want to join yourself to someone who's not following the Lord. That's part of what this whole passage is about. And then he says something interesting. He says, and by the way, in the same way that two people, when they have sexual intercourse, are joined together in the most intimate of ways, you, if you are a Christian, are joined to Christ in an equally intimate way. He uses bedroom language, not to be crass, but he uses bedroom language to describe what the Lord has with you and you have with the Lord. That is the type of intimacy that he believes we all have as believers. And because we live in such a hypersexualized culture, it's, it's even hard to think about that. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, one chapter over. If you're single, don't read this one. I'd tear this one out. This is the worst chapter I ever read as a single man. I couldn't believe it was in there. Um, and so don't listen. Just get on your phone, do something. I'm going to read a couple of verses. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul actually, this incredible thing of marriage, actually says that marriage is optional and distracting. And so I'm going to read it to you. Verse 32. Again, your fault if you listen. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. And I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Verse 38, so then he who marries his betrothed does well. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. All right, we won't talk about that chapter again. Paul also, in 2 Corinthians, writes more about marriage. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, What fellowship does light have with darkness? Don't be united, don't be, don't be equally, unequally yoked. Be joined together with someone who shares the same faith as you. And so you would think, is Paul making a new statement here? He's not. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. Because in Deuteronomy 7, 3 and 4, when the law was given, Moses was told by God, don't, don't marry men of other faiths. Don't marry women of other faiths because they will pull your heart away from God. We don't missionary date and marry. And if you think, well, that won't happen to me. The wisest man in the world, 
One of the saddest verses ever said about him is 1 Kings chapter 11, 4. Solomon's heart is turned away from God because of the wives that he married who had other gods. And so, finally we end up at the end of the book. We end up in Revelation chapter 19, verse 9. And in 19.9, I'm just going to read it to you. It's a whole section on the marriage feast of the Lamb, and the church is, is joining Christ in the second coming. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then the Bible quickly comes to a close. And so to summarize, this is a brief walkthrough of some of the verses that describe the theology of marriage, and I'm going to explain it a little further. But to summarize, marriage is blessed and given by God, but it's a picture of a greater reality as the scriptures reveal over time. And that reality is that it is ultimately a metaphor given by God for men and women to understand his plan for the future unions Christians will have with Jesus. And so I want to briefly go over these five spokes that are all through the scriptures. And the first one is this covenant union. These five spokes of, 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 of the theology of marriage. The first one, and you're like, Thomas, I want to know how to find a date. We have a whole conference coming up in August. You can come. It's a Friday night. It's a Saturday. We're organizing it. We're putting it together. It's going to be great. Um, and I still may not tell you. Uh, and so, uh, no, I'm just kidding. I don't know why I said that. We'll stop. Here we go. All right. Uh, the first one is the covenant union. When God made us, he loved us instantly. He's never abandoned us. He's never given up on us. He continues to, to, to the point that he sends his son to die for us. And when he makes marriage, it is a microcosm of that covenant relationship. Forsaking all others, do you take so-and-so? I do. Forsaking all others, do you take so-and-so? I do. For better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health. Till death do us part. The covenant union that we have as husband and wife is simply a picture of the covenant union that the Lord has made with us. Now, the second part is a very interesting one. And N.T. Wright, if you know who he is, and some other folks have written on this, it's a very, very interesting topic. There's a lot that goes in with it. I'm gonna give a very brief summary. But the second of the five spokes is diversity. And diversity, I would define as when heaven meets earth. When man meets woman. There's a beautiful diversity within the theology of marriage. When God showed his love for us, he came out of heaven and created a place for us to reign and to rule and to subdue and to work the land. He, he made this place for us and then he made us. You see all kinds of diversity in his creation, but the biggest picture of diversity is heaven, the triune God, stepping down and forming man in the clay and then putting man to sleep and opening up his side and forming a woman out of what came out of the side of Adam. And so you have different, making different, coming together. And you have, that's heaven, coming to earth, and then you have man and woman coming together, different and different coming together in order to bring heaven to earth. And so you see this incredible picture of diversity in the biblical accounts of marriage. And then out of the covenant and out of that diversity, heaven meeting earth, that companionship that's, that's unwavering in the covenant. Out of that, we get the other three. And the other three are fruitfulness, which is fulfilling God's redemption plan. Initially, fruitfulness was, hey, the world's a wild place, Adam and Eve. 
Y'all name the animals, y'all grow the crops, y'all have a good time. You won't even break a sweat. When you have a kid, you won't, you'll be like back doing whatever you were doing before you had the kid. Like it won't even hurt. And then everything gets a little broken. And so now that fruitfulness is being about the work of God. And by the way, this is where a lot of Christian couples just fall apart. They're like, we're committed to each other. We got the covenant. It's a man and a woman. We got diversity. We got all these things. It's great. And then they forget the third part, the fruitfulness of fulfilling God's plan. And they begin to be fruitful, fulfilling their own plan. And no longer is heaven coming to earth. It's just earth and earth. And so this this fruitfulness then there's multiplication, and marriage between a man and a woman is the simplest way to have multiplication. How does that happen? Well, a man and a woman, they can, they can reproduce imago day. And so you have this natural multiplication, and most of those people are going to grow up to follow the God that their mom and dad serve. And so if you have, you have that type of multiplication, but what if you have a couple like Heather and I that have been unable to have kids? Well, we, we decided early on, if this was gonna be an issue for us, we were still gonna practice multiplication. And how are we gonna do it? We were gonna pour into all the people we could pour into. That they might pour into people that they could pour into. That they might pour into people that they could pour into. We are all, as believers, a part of this multiplication business. And it doesn't matter what your relational status is. We are all a part of this multiplication process. And again, all five of these come out of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And then there's the fourth or the fifth spoke. And the fifth spoke would be sexual expression. And God gave man and woman together the ability to expose themselves in the most vulnerable of ways through sexual expression. There's no greater expression of humans than sexual intercourse for intimacy to be shared. And God highly guards this aspect of marriage. Taken rightly, it's a blessing like no others, but taken wrongly, listen to this, almost nothing can cut someone as deeply as misused sexual expression. This union also is a symbol of becoming one flesh. It's a metaphor for the unions Christians have with Jesus. And we just read it in, in 1 Corinthians 6, 17. And in Hebrews 13, 4, it's a fascinating verse. Hebrews 13, 4 says, The marriage bed should be held in honor among all, but the adulterer and the immoral will be punished. And you think, why? Why does God just want people to be like really good at self-control? And so he's just going to punish the people that aren't practicing self-control? No. No, he knows this expression within marriage called sex is the closest thing we have on earth to the deep vulnerability and connectedness that we are supposed to have with Christ. And so anyone who violates that falls under the hand of God. It's that guarded, it's that private, it's that personal, it's that beautiful, it's that intimate of an expression that we have with the Lord. So in skeleton form, I'll just show you on the screen. In skeleton form, to boil it down, we have covenant union, which is picturing God's commitment to us. We have diversity, which pictures heaven meeting earth. We have fruitfulness, which is fulfilling God's plan of redemption. We have multiplication, which is creating more image bearers. And we have sexual expression, which is picturing our oneness in Christ. And this, this is how Heather and I evaluate our marriage. We ask ourselves, how is the covenant? Are we letting anyone in or anything in that shouldn't be in? How is, how's our diversity? Are we a picture of heaven meeting earth? How's our fruitfulness? Are we pursuing God's plans or our plans? How much time are we spending being selfish versus multiplying? How much money are we spending on these things? And sexual expression. Are we coming together? I'm I'm not trying to be graphic at all. Are we coming together enough as a couple so that, as Paul says, you keep the evil out? 
But are we idolizing sexual expression to the point that it becomes too important? All of these things are ways we evaluate the health of our marriage. Now, what you see as you read the story of the Bible is it's fascinating. The Bible is actually a marriage story. It is the Lord, it is the Lord pursuing us and, and coming after us and sacrificing for us and covenanting with us and being intimate with us. It is all of these things. And what we see is that four of the five of these can be experienced by all people. The one held off in this life is the sexual expression. That's not to say there is a sexual expression in heaven. I'm saying that it is a picture here on earth of the intimacy that we will have with Christ in heaven. So the question is, where does that leave us? Where, where does that leave us in relationship to the passage that Kayla read when we started the night? It should start to leave us in a place where we realize if marriage is a picture, that then our hope, our joy, lies eternally not here, not in a replica, but in the real thing that awaits. And the reason that Matthew 22, 23 to 33 is difficult is because it says that God is going to take away sex and marriage. And we idolize them. I'll read you the passage again. Verse, I'll start in verse 29, but Jesus answered them, you're wrong because you don't know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, most of us, we don't get past the, the rest of this because the rest of the teaching is brilliant. He says, don't you remember what God told uh, Moses? I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the living, not the dead. There's like incredible wisdom and insight that's just like, mind-blowing when Jesus points that out to the people who didn't believe in the resurrection. Uh, and so it's just fascinating. But, but we usually stop because we're like, wait, there's no marriage in heaven? Well, that just seems really sad. And, and, and I was kind of banking a lot of my existence on maybe getting married one day and maybe really being loved and maybe putting an end to loneliness and maybe finally having a purpose Maybe finally getting to carry on my legacy. And, and what we see is, if we're not careful, is that we have quickly departed from a true biblical theology of marriage. And we have made marriage our God and relationships our God. You see, it's difficult. It's, it's really difficult to understand this uh, because... We really do idolize marriage, and I'll tell you that Heather and I have enjoyed some, some marriage television, um, like The Crown, and you know, there's like The Crown, there's Princess Di, there's King Charles, there's the Queen Consort Camilla, um, there's Harry and Meghan, William and Kate. We have like lots of royals, lots of, lots of royals. We love the royals. We love the royals. We love to watch their marriages. Um, I don't know if you're the same. If you're a guy and you haven't watched any of these, get with it, bro. Um, and so, like, you know, I, I mean, and then, you know, then there's like, uh, you know, Harry and Meghan and what a stink that's causing, but maybe they're going to be fine. Um, and then, you know, but just to, just so we rhyme, there's Harry and Meghan, William and Kate, and then we all love to watch Ryan and Blake. Uh, and so, I mean, Ryan and Blake, they're just a beautiful couple, maybe the prettiest couple in the world. Um, and so, I mean, they're like a very good looking couple, uh, but like, we, we want, and then we, and then we start watching these couples and we're like, I like their marriage. I don't like their marriage. They should do this different. They should do that different. And we start cherry picking what is marriage. And we depart so quickly from these clear instructions of this biblical marriage theology of it being a picture with a purpose of something much greater that lies ahead. And we can have most of it right now. We want, we want like Barbie Jesus and Ken Jesus, and they just don't exist. Marriage is selfless, and the selfie generation, that's a tall order. 
We can take the royals away now. <laughs> I mean, I like them up on the screen. But, and, and I want you to know, the reason this is hard to believe and hard for everybody to believe is because what's right in here is broken. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says, the heart is wicked and deceitful above all else, and who can understand it? Our little hearts love to hear a lie that's got a little bit of me in it with some hope and joy mixed in, and we just embrace it. It's difficult to understand how what Jesus says in Matthew 22 23 to 33 is good because we're hypersexualized. We can't imagine God taking sex away and things being okay. That's like very, very difficult to comprehend. And so I, I want to read you an, an old quote from C.S. Lewis, and I'll put it up on the screen. He says, I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy who on being told that the sexual act is the highest bodily pleasure should immediately ask whether you also ate chocolate at the same time. And on receiving the answer no, he might regard the absence of chocolates as the chief characteristic of sexuality. And in vain you would tell him that the reason why lovers in their carnal raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of but the boy only knows chocolate. He does not know the positive thing which excludes it. We are in the same position. We know the sexual life. We do not, what we do not know, I'm sorry, we do not know, except in glimpses, the other thing, which in heaven will leave no room for it. Listen to this last line. Hence where fullness awaits, we anticipate fasting. The reason we think sex is so good and it's so bad that God would take it away is because it's, it's chocolate and we're five. And it's the best we know. And all through your life, you've had those moments where that was the best you knew and then another thing was revealed and you were like, I totally forgot about that other thing. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what the Lord has in store for those who love him. So we, I, I, I want us to, to answer one more question, though, and that is, will we re remember our spouses in heaven? Heather, Heather did ask this question, and I asked it, because like you first get married, and you're like, this is great. And then you get your photos back, and you're like, this is so nice. Those are very expensive. Don't spill anything on that. And like you're looking through them, and you're like, this is so great. And, uh, and you just think, and then you read this verse, and you're like, what? We won't know each other? That's not what it says. In fact, I think the way that we know each other now will be more, now listen to me, I love Heather, and Heather loves me. We're deeply committed to each other. We love each other a bunch. I think the way that we will know each other then might just make Heather and I's relationship seem shallow. There is a perfect union in God's kingdom and we just, we bank so much on now. It's difficult because we forget the original intent of fruitfulness. We look for satisfaction in all the wrong places. I joked, but I post about marriage and like a bajillion people are like, I'm there, I'm there, I'm there, I'm there, I'm there. I post about Jesus and people are like, I'll probably get the recording. And that's not a knock. I do the same thing when I hear something I'm interested in. I'm like, oh, I want to go to that. Oh, I'm not quite as interested. I may, may go, may not. Like, I, I, I understand. We, we do that. We, we pick and choose things. And you're better than that. I know you're better than that. But I just want us to, to realize that the original intent of fruitfulness that brings us so much life as we engage in the Lord's work is not is not sequestered for married people only. In fact, you do it better than most married people I know. 
And I don't want you to lose that. Should you get married, I want that to be compounded. Many of you tonight, I know, you long so badly to be married. And, and I remember that. In fact, that's why you're here. You hope that you'll find that special person. And this is a great place to meet that special person. I can't imagine a better place. But unfortunately, for some of you, no matter what I say, you probably won't be convinced that marriage is not the end-all, be-all in this life. But that marriage in Revelation 19 is the one that all of these marriages point to and look to, and that's where it really happens. These marriages at best walk with a limp. That one soars. I, I prayed that the Spirit would move tonight to free us to be comfortable where we are. I want us to see the true groom, Jesus, who loves you, who plans to spend eternity with you, who celebrates you, who has a plan for you. Whether you find a husband or a helper or, or not, his work still beckons our call. So right now, where is your hope and joy? Because if you think marriage will fix it, show me one couple that it did. You think marriage will fix loneliness, give you purpose, kids will do it? Show me one couple that it truly fixed everything for their whole life. It doesn't. Have you ever thought about Ephesians 5.32? Really, really thought about that verse? I'm just going just gonna to read it to you. Paul says a bunch of stuff about wives and about husbands, and he says, therefore, in verse 31, a man will leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I want to paint a quick picture for you. What if Heather and I's marriage was rocky? And what if I was unfaithful to her? What if she was unfaithful to me? What would that communicate to you? But what if, what if I was unfaithful to her, but she remained faithful to me? Or what if she was unfaithful to me, but I remained covenanted to her? Well, what would that, that would speak deeply. But what if, as we, as is common to say, we just stopped loving one another? And that covenant is utterly broken and the fruitfulness is stopped. Hope has failed, love has failed. This communicates, listen to me, this communicates something much bigger than two people out of eight billion having a bad day. And why? Because marriage is a picture of something massive. It's, it's a picture of two diverse things coming together, swearing allegiance no matter the mood or the behavior. It's a covenant. It wards off all others. It gives companionship, hope, love. It has purpose, fruitfulness, multiplication, and this is a profound mystery. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church because no man or woman can do this for you. This is about Jesus and you now, not later, because he's the lover of your soul. Brendan Manning, a famous preacher, died a couple of years ago, said that he was convinced that when we go to heaven, the Lord will ask us one question and one question only, and I'll read it to you. He believed that Jesus would ask, do you believe that I loved you, that I desired you, that I waited for you day after day, that I longed to hear the sound of your voice. And the real believers there will answer, yes, Jesus, I believed in your love. I tried to shape my life as a response to it. But many who were so faithful in our ministry, in our practice, in our church going, are going to have to reply, well, frankly, no, sir. I never really believed it. I always thought that was just a nice way of speaking, a kindly lie. Some Christians pious pat on the back to cheer me on. 
to embrace the real marriage, not the picture, is to first check your heart and see if you truly believe the Lord loves you as you are in this moment right now. Because that's the love story, the marriage story of the Bible. That the Lord loves us, again, to use another Brendan Manning line, that the Lord loves us as we are and not as we should be. Because none of us are as we should be. So, I'll end with these two simple questions. Is Jesus enough right now? And where is my hope and joy? Revelation 19, 6 and 7 says, Hallelujah, for the Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. To make yourself ready, is Jesus enough and where is your hope and joy? Let me pray. Father, we love you and our hope and joy is in you. And Lord, if it's not, may you convict, may you move us and free us to where we really can say Jesus is enough. And we can rejoice married, single, or anywhere else, Lord, in the spectrum. That marriage is simply a picture of the rapturous love that you have for us. So Lord, may our lives be found fruitful and faithful, no matter our relationship status, as we join in your work. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Will you stand with me as we sing?